been talking about our need to know God, that that is the greatest need that any human being has. It is the need to know him and to know him in particular ways. God wants us to know him accurately. He wants us to know him personally, savingly, intimately and eternally. God wants us to know him. He wants us to know him in order that we could experience him in the ways that he intended to know him through the creation that he has given us, that we might enjoy him through it, the conscience he has placed in us, that we might be sensitive to him through the Bible he has given us, that we might hear and listen and know him in, in that particularly intimate and personal way as he reveals himself to us through the word, through Christ our Savior and to know him as our intimate friend, our Savior, our King, God in the flesh, and also to know Him through the church as we experience Him among each other. And God has given the task of the church to know Him in these ways, and then to be grown in His likeness, so that as we become like Christ, as we become like God the Father through Christ, by the power of His Spirit, we begin to show Him to the world. So I need to get up each day, and I want to know God in such a way that I grow in His likeness and show what He is like to others. And one of the best ways... That I can do that is through knowing what Jesus is like. And one of the great truths is the glory of Jesus as friend of sinners. Last week I introduced to you the concept of Jesus, friend of sinners, and we asked and answered a question, who are the sinners? So you can quickly fill this in. Maybe you missed last week or a little refresher this week with some of the things we added as we went. They were a class of people known as irreligious. They did not practice the church-going thing. They were irreverent. They scoffed at the whole idea of being religious and being a part of what we might call organized religion. They were also known as immoral people. They did not practice the things that God had revealed in the Bible as ways that human beings made in His image should act. And they were impure people. They didn't take part in the ceremonial order of the day where they cleansed themselves and purified themselves according to the traditions of the religious people of the day. And they were the indigent, the infirm, and the physically impaired. They were sick. Now, part of the theology of the prosperity gospel was already alive in that day. The idea that if you were right with God, you would never be sick, never be poor, and never have any kind of physical limitation. So they looked down on people who were sick or poor or physically impaired. You remember this interchange in John chapter 9 where... There's a man born blind, and the disciples see him, and they ask Jesus the question. They say, uh, who sinned, him or his parents, that he would be born blind? There was this idea that all sickness, all suffering, all illness, and all poverty were the direct result of one's personal offense against God, rather than the 
offense against God in the Garden of Eden that had set all of those things into our lives. And so they saw every act of poverty, every situation of sickness, every time that someone was disabled, they thought that they were personally, or at least their parents were personally guilty of a specific sin that would cause this thing to happen. And so Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents have sinned, but this illness is to the glory of God. Later, when that man is healed and he's giving testimony to Jesus uh, in the midst of the Pharisees, and he says that he has healed him and confesses that he has been healed and that he trusts in Jesus, they yell at him and throw him out and they say, you were born completely in sin, how are you going to lecture us? And so there was alive in that day the belief that if you weren't part of the religious circle, that you were somehow sick or impoverished or immoral specifically because of God's not loving or caring for or offering you grace. And so when Jesus began to eat and drink with these sinners, it was very surprising. It was, it was revolutionary for their day. Now, in asking who are the sinners, we also said that the sinners are those who externally demonstrate what all are internally capable of or culpable for. In other words, there's a lot of sin on the inside that is not revealed on the outside that makes people look like they're okay. And that was common in Jesus' day. Because the Pharisees had the same kind of sin on the inside that these others had on the outside, but they dressed themselves up in the the robes of religious activity to hide the sinfulness of their hearts. In other words, Jesus' lesson was that all have sinned, that there is none righteous, no, not one. Wasn't it good to hear that in the Bible drill? Weren't those kids great? That was just amazing. I thought, you know, uh, one of the most embarrassing things would be to have Bible drill with staff versus kids. You know? <laughs> or maybe staff and deacons versus the teenagers. We'd, if we'd really be suffering in that. Uh, they're amazing. I was so pleased with that. But... The Bible's getting around to the point that sinners are all of us. But in the day that they're being spoken of in Matthew, they were this particular class of people who were on the outside. And Jesus identified with them and their suffering. When you read through Isaiah 53, you hear about him who is acquainted with grief, one who bears our sorrows. So he's personally involved with us in our sinfulness and in understanding our sinfulness, though he was never guilty of sin. And we asked last week, why is Jesus eating and drinking with these people, with these sinners, this class of people? Well, he's doing three things. We mentioned it last week. He's welcoming them. This is how God is. God welcomes sinners. That's the way God is. That's how the church should be. That's how church individually and corporately should be seen by the sinful world as those who welcome sinners. We also notice that Jesus is affirming them. 
He's affirming their value because they were made, they were created in the image of God. That intrinsic in their creation is human dignity and worth. Now think through how he really communicated that. Jesus told a lot of stories and parables that included sinners. And he would name that they were sinners. He would call them sick. He would call them lost. He would note that they were in need of forgiveness. He would note that they were estranged from God. He would say that they needed to repent. So Jesus was very clear about sinners being people lost, sick, in need of repentance and forgiveness, and separated from God. But as he tells those stories, he tells stories like the woman with the lost coin where she begins moving all the furniture in her house, seeking the coin. Why? Because to her, it has value. And she moves everything and she sweeps and sweeps. And finally, she locates the coin and she calls her friends and has a party about finding her coin. Think about that. She's so excited that she finds her coin that she goes out to her neighbors and says, Y'all come over, come over, come over. i got to celebrate. Everybody gets there. What's the celebration? It's a party. I found my coin. What Jesus is saying is this. God's valuing of you as a sinner is such that when He sweeps the earth and finds you, that He wants to throw a party Over you. The next story, there in the book of Luke, is the story of the lost sheep. And just like the woman who sweeps the house and looks for the coin, the shepherd leaves the ninety-nine and looks for the sheep. And when he comes back, he's, he's got the sheep on his shoulders and he calls his friends too. And he says, let's all get together. I found my sheep. He's so excited over finding what was lost that he, he throws a party. God is so delighted in saving sinners that God rejoices when sinners come to Him. You have the story of the lost son that follows right on the heels of the lost coin and the lost sheep. And there's this lost son and he goes away and he squanders his living and his inheritance and his life and his well-being. He sinks so low that he's living with pigs and wanting to eat the food that pigs that they're eating. And he says, I should arise and go to my father. He comes home. The dad is waiting on him, runs to him, falls on his neck, weeps, puts a ring on his finger, puts a a robe on him, shoes on his feet, and then throws a party with all the neighbors and says, Rejoice! My son was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. This is how God was affirming the value of broken, sinful humans. In his eyes. He would seek them. He would save them. And he would celebrate them. And he was commending to those sinners who gathered to him. He was affirming their worth as beings made in the image of God. 
This is one of the most important aspects of understanding Jesus' ministry to broken, lost, sick people that we call sinners, which is us. It's one of the most important aspects because this welcoming and affirming the value of human dignity created in God's image and the rejoicing that God Himself does when sinners turn and come to Him, the church must commend this to the world. The world needs to know God is looking for them. The sinner needs to know God is searching, seeking. He's sweeping and He's going and He's waiting and He's running. These were pictures of God communicating through Christ His true love for sinners and Jesus' true friendship to sinners. But he not only does that, he's inviting them. He's inviting them into a saving, personal, intimate, accurate, eternal relationship where they can know God. No matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, no matter what their record or rap sheet is, this is the glory of God. He loves and saves sinners. And he's seeking. And so we got to celebrate this last week and enjoy this, that God was doing this work of welcoming, affirming, and inviting sinful people. These were the people that the religious folks would not invite, affirm, or welcome. They would pass them by. Some kind of offensive behavior, posture, demeanor, history. You hear this kind of stuff revealed when Jesus is at the house of Simon the Pharisee. They're there at the house. The story in the Bible goes like this. A woman with a bad reputation came. And she went to Jesus' feet and began to weep over them and washed His feet with her tears and her hair and then broke open a valuable container of perfume that was worth an entire year's wages and poured it out upon Him. And the only thing that Simon could do was to judge her and Jesus and he would say this, If this man knew what kind of woman this was, he would not allow her to touch him. He must not be a true prophet. But Jesus was just the opposite. He was welcoming of her. He was affirming of her. And he was inviting her. And he said these words, Her sins are forgiven. And so here's the work of Christ, friend of sinners, coming in and dealing directly with humans. So let's talk about how that started. Let's jump into the text, verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Now here it is, it's Jesus' incarnation. Jesus is going to put on skin. He is going to become human. 
He is not a hybrid where He's 50% God and 50% human. Jesus is the God-man. He is 100% God, 100% human. And He knows what you feel like. I'll never forget the first time I heard this story about a man who really didn't like church. And he was dead set against church. He thought it was all foolishness. His wife was a believer and she would go and she would be involved in church. And I don't know if the story was made up or if it was real. I've heard it passed down through the years, but I've always been touched by its content. The man was supposedly was fairly rebellious against his wife's church attendance, and he would kind of harass her a little bit, though she would pray for him and invite him and encourage him. He would just always kind of blow her off and just say, that's just foolishness, that's the most nonsensical thing, I hate organized religion, it's just a bunch of hypocrisy. And so, she was getting ready to go to a Christmas celebration, and he was kind of berating her for the whole Christmas thing. And she went on to the, the the Christmas gathering, and that night a storm was blowing in, and an incredibly cold wind was coming, and a flock of birds became disoriented in the storm and in the cold, and they were in danger of freezing. And so they were circling around out by his house, and he looked out the window and he saw them and he became very concerned for them because he said, these birds are going to freeze to death in the storm that's coming if they don't find some place of refuge. And so he goes back to his barn and he kicks the doors open and he's trying somehow to get the birds to come into the barn. And no matter how he tries to do, the birds just seem to be sort of disoriented and fearful. They keep flying around. And he tries different ways of getting them in. He tries opening doors on both ends and tries all kinds of stuff. But nothing, nothing at all works. And finally, he just in frustration yells out, If I could just become a bird, I could show them how they could be saved. And all of a sudden, the incarnation made sense. And after all those years of rejecting God, he went, wait a minute. That's exactly what God did in Christ. He became a man and came among a disoriented, perishing bunch of sinners. And he showed us how to be saved by being the salvation Himself. And He walked among us as the incarnated God. He chose to be dependent on food, water. He chose to be dependent on a mom, a dad. He chose to have to have air. Think about God. (laughs) He doesn't need air. He chose to be dependent upon a heart, that would beat and a pulse and blood and corpuscles. In other words, he became dependent on the very thing he invented. And he inhabited a real, living, breathing human body so that he could be a friend of sinners and sit at tables and eat with them. And they could know him and enjoy his love and understand His welcome and comprehend His affirmation and say yes to His invitation. Jesus and His incarnation are the glorious story of God putting on flesh and blood 
And Jesus still wears that. Did you know that? In His resurrected body, Jesus still has a real, living, human body. Today, as He sits at the right hand of God, He has exactly the resurrected body we one day will have. He has chosen that He will inhabit that for all of eternity. This was the incarnation. It was the glorious miracle of Jesus identifying with us. But He didn't stop at just the incarnation. He could have so easily been incarnated (laughs) and sat in a castle. You know, just kind of, I'm going to take on flesh and blood, but y'all fix me up a really nice place. Okay? You know, I want all of the comforts that are possible for humanity. I want servants waiting on me. I want somebody fanning me. I want the whole deal. All of the comforts of that. No! He involved himself in absolutely normal human life. He had to burp and he had to spit and he had to go to the bathroom and he had to find out what a skint nose or a runny nose and a skint knee. He had to know what those things are so that he could understand us. The Bible says that he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That we have a merciful and faithful high priest who became flesh in order that through death he might overcome him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And so, Jesus' involvement in human life was in a normal, lower class village. Dad is a carpenter, you learn his trade as you go along. He knew what everyday life was. He knew how farms worked and he knew how people acted and he knew how society functioned, but he knew it from the common people and a common life. Jesus chose not just incarnation, but intimate involvement in normal, everyday, the drudgery that we go through in our, in our regular human activity. He knew what all, he knew what all of that was like. He spent 30 years in just normal human life. Involving himself with a family, friends, carpentry, and going to the synagogue and visiting the temple and sheep being sacrificed. All of it. So that he could be a friend to you. Identify with you, know you, and, and, and ultimately be you in your place. A substitute in life and in death. And so here's Jesus, incarnated, dependent upon all of these things, involved, all in the regular kind of humanity. This is our God. This is what He's like. Though He is so high and so lofty that we cannot even comprehend, He has condescended to wear your skin and know what your everyday life is like. He knows what your sorrows are like. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows what it's like when you don't feel included, when you are rejected. He knows what it's like to feel pain. He knows what it's like when not even your family support what you're doing. His mom and his brothers thought he'd lost his mind. And they came to pick him up and take him home. He knows these things. 
He came to be a genuine, legitimate, true friend to us. And to understand, to sympathize, Hebrews says, to sympathize with our weaknesses. So whatever it is that you are going through, Jesus knows and understands and comprehends. So he was not just incarnated, he was not just involved, but he came to a whole nother level. And that was his intimacy with human beings at their greatest need. Listen, he's right here, he's born. The incarnation, he's born into a family, there's going to be some confusion. Who's your daddy? I really think the John 8 references to fornication and being a Samaritan are all slurs on Jesus' mama. He's born into a very unideal situation where the dad is so upset by the pregnancy of the wife that he's ready to put her away secretly. It takes a miracle of God and an angel to come and stand in front of Joseph and say, you're about to blow it, bud. What is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's never happened before, never happened again. This is it. And so you have the story here in verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And so here, it takes a miracle to get Joseph to stay in the story and not bail out, because you've got this, what appears to be, illegitimate legitimate pregnancy and all of the scuttlebutt that's going to run around with that. Baby's going to arrive and if you do your calculations right and you've done this before. How many of you have ever calculated somebody's due date and the time the baby was born back to their wedding date? Have you ever done that? Tell me the truth. You ever done it? I've done it. And sometimes it doesn't add up, does it? And what do you start thinking? You start thinking, something's up there. Well, that was happening here. Mary's going to have a baby, and if you do all the due date stuff, the wedding hadn't happened yet. She's betrothed, but they hadn't had the celebration. So that's going to get out. Jesus' intimacy with human beings at their greatest need is that He is going to immerse Himself into what humanity is really like. Notice how He does that in three ways. Look down in verse 21. I think it's one of the best verses in the whole Bible. She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for it is He who will save. The first thing that He is going to do is that He is going to to save. He's going to meet us at our greatest need. Remember when the guys brought the guy on the pallet? He had these friends and they brought this guy on the pallet to this house where Jesus was healing and there was such a crowd around the outside that they couldn't get in to see Him. So they go up on the roof and they tear the hole in the roof and get some ropes and let this guy down. You know, here's Jesus. This guy kind of drops in right in front of Him. And He's lame. He's laying on the pallet. He's sick. And 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 Jesus looks at Him and He doesn't say, uh, be healed. He doesn't say, take your pallet. What does He say to Him? Your sins are forgiven. Listen, make sure you don't miss this. Jesus is meeting us at our greatest need. It is not our physical sickness. 
Our greatest need is not that we are going to get sick and get old and die. That is not our greatest need. Our greatest need is we need our sins forgiven because we're sinners. And so Jesus just looks over at the guy and says, your sins are forgiven. Nothing else was needed. That's just awesome. The faith of these guys and this guy's own faith. Bam! This is the thing. And everybody says, whoa, time out. Who alone but God can forgive sin? Jesus says, oh, by the way, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up and go home. (laughs) The guy gets up and everybody goes, wow, that is authority. But Jesus is digging down into what your greatest need is. You need to be saved. Because sin is your issue. That's why He calls us sinners and wants to be our friend. Because He wants to save, to rescue, to deliver. Just a few weeks ago, Danae and Easter had a very serious accident in a car. And some of you have heard some of the stories of it, but my favorite part of the story, I hate Rex, but my favorite part of the story as Danan was sitting and recounting to me was their vehicle rolled over and they couldn't get her out. The, it, the top was kind of crushed and Danan was trapped in the back and they were going to have to cut the hood off the car. And a nurse came up on the accident, jumps out of her car, runs and climbs down into the car with Danan. And Danan recounts how this lady gets down in. She said, I don't even know how she got in. I couldn't get out. The lady climbs down in and is with her, saying to her, it's going to be alright. I'm here for you. Listen, Jesus has climbed into the, the absolute train wreck of your life. And He climbs right down in there with you. A place you can't even get out of on your own. And He climbs down in there and He says, you know what? It can be okay with me. That's what He's doing in the incarnation. That's what He's doing in the involvement. That's what He's doing in the intimacy. He is climbing down into the wreckage of your life. Because He loves you. And you are trapped and you cannot get out. But Jesus wants to be right there with you. That is love. I think, I don't even know who this nurse is. Man, wouldn't you like to hug her neck? Wouldn't you just like to say thank you for somebody who cares that much because our dear sister was suffering and she was scared and she was injured and there a nurse just climbed right down in there with her. I'm thinking, man, I'd just hug her and say thank you so much for being there. I couldn't be there for her. This is Jesus. Climbing into the wreckage of your life. And so He wants to save us, to rescue us, to deliver us. The second thing is, it's not just that He will save, it's that He will save His people. Now, I like to ask this question. I wish you would just say the question, who are His people? Oh, have you thought about that? Jesus, friend of sinners. Can't you see Him sitting with tax collectors and prostitutes and the immoral? And He's right there with them. They're His people. While the Pharisees are all standing back in their religious, pious, false, godliness, big nose staring down on those immoral and Jesus right there in the middle of them. Who are His people? Sinners. You say, 
Bart, are you sure about that? Oh, I was hoping you would ask that. Come with me to 1 Corinthians. There's a text in 1 Corinthians that is embarrassingly accurate about me. My folks, I know that many of you have heard me refer to the, the to this uh, book, um, uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Now, I did warn when I talked about that book, the language is horrid. And so based on that, I have a hard time recommending the book, but my family could have written the book. My mom... I have a list. I showed it yesterday. To, I was visiting with R.P. and Francis Andrews yesterday. And, and I showed them a picture uh, on my, te- my, my cell phone. And on there are the 26 places my mom lived before she was 15 years old. My people are broken people. I come from brokenness. We could have written Hillbilly Elegy and it would have probably been worse than the book is. 1 Corinthians one twenty eight, starting verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. So what's happening is that the people, the religious people, both Jews and Greeks, are looking down on the common people that Jesus has related to. The sinners, the riffraff, the prostitutes, all of these folks that, that, that are considered the outcasts of society. And so Paul says, hey, you guys need to celebrate this. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. He's saying, you're a bunch of nobodies. That's who Jesus saves. What were you? Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish people of the world to shame the wise people. God has chosen the weak people of the world to shame the the people who are strong. God has chosen the base people of the world and the despised. God has chosen the people that are not, that He might nullify the people that are. That no man should boast before God. Jesus is the friend of sinners. They're His people. Who are Jesus' people? The broken. The lame. The sick and the poor. Who did he identify with? The sinners. And so his people it's us. We are his people. Sinful folks like us. No, nobody's from nowhere. He will save His people. But what does He save them from? He says it right there in Matthew. From their sins. What I love about Jesus is that He didn't start a seminary thinking that religious education was going to fix us. He didn't start a movement where a government age agency was going to relieve all hunger, thinking that hunger was the greatest human need. He didn't start a hospital so that sick people could all be made well. He came to deal with this one thing. Sinners sin because their heart is sinful. And that's what Jesus came to deal with. Friend of sinners means that He meets us at the base point of where our needs are. Do you know what? Jesus knows what you're really like. I don't know that anybody else does. I don't know that anybody else knows every thought that's ever passed 
through that sin-sick mind of yours or mine. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the motives and the thoughts, the hatreds and the murders and the adulteries and all of those things that have went through our mind. Nobody knows those except Jesus. And knowing full well exactly what every one of us is like, He gives a full welcome to every one of us that He may affirm that He wants to seek and save us and invite us to salvation. Jesus is the friend of sinners. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of the most enlightening verses of the Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin. I want you to think that through for a minute. Everything you've ever been, Jesus was. Every hateful thought, every malicious intent, every lustful imagination, every deed that you now regret, Or should. Jesus became. He who knew no sin. Doesn't say. Came to know about sin. Doesn't say. Was educated about sin. Doesn't say. Thought about sin. It says he became. So while he was on the cross. Jesus. Was you. Incarnate in everything you are. He was me. He was my friend. Never was he more my friend than when he was me. Never was he more friendly than when he became sin. Because there was a price for all that welcoming. There was a price for all that affirming. There was a price for all that inviting. There was a price for all that saving. And that was that sin had to be punished. God cannot be just and not punish sin. And so God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting our trespasses against us. And He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. I beg you, be reconciled to God. God in Christ. Christ became sin. So that we might have the righteousness of God in Him. So He's not just saving. Not just saving His people, but He's saving us from His sin. In order to befriend us, He had to become us. There was no other way. Oh, you can get all kind of friends for requests on Facebook. 
And they can befriend you. And you know what that's worth. (laughs) Jonathan Edwards, during his ministry, came into contact with one of the greatest missionaries who's ever lived in the United States. This missionary was one of the greatest that ever lived in the history of the world. We have very little on him. His name was David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a missionary to the Indians. When it wasn't hip or cool to be a missionary to the Indians. This was during the 1700s. David Brainerd became a missionary to the Indians and through the ministries that he did and the people that he served, he came in touch with tuberculosis, which at that time was deadly. Jonathan Edwards knew the dangers of tuberculosis. But he loved David Brainerd. And he saw in him such a heart for God that when David Brainerd began to succumb to tuberculosis, Jonathan Edwards brought him into his house. Jonathan Edwards had a daughter, sweet, precious girl named Jerusha. And for the last nine months of David Brainerd's life, as his health slipped away day by day due to the tuberculosis, Jerusha kept... David Brainerd in isolation and personally every day, all day, took care of him. Historians understand that they fell in love. And over that nine month period, David Brainerd's life finally slipped away. And after nine months in Jonathan Edwards' home at only 29 years of age, one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church slipped into his eternal reward with Jesus after such loving care. But there was a price for that friendship. There was no way Jerusha could get that close without getting tuberculosis. She died four months later. Jonathan Edwards gave up his daughter to care for his friend. And there was no way she could get so close without having what he had. And she died. That's Jesus. He has condescended to you He's crawled into the wreckage of your life and He has gotten so close to you that He cannot be that close without getting what you have. And He who knew no sin became sin so that He might reconcile you to God. So He might one day go home to His dad's house and say... This is my friend. I want to introduce him to you. 
He's now my brother and your son because I have saved him. I've become him. I've paid for him. Listen carefully. Jesus is not a Facebook friend from a distance who sits around and likes all your garbage. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother and He has moved into the intimacy of your being. And in order to save you from who you are and what you've done, He has become you. And on the cross, He caught what you had and suffered its consequences. But His is different. Because He is God in the flesh, death, could not hold Him. And on the third day, having conquered what you've had, He was raised from the dead to give you what He has. Life. And He is willing to impart to you forgiveness of your sin. Life eternal. Love and acceptance. Welcome and affirmation. And He is inviting you today to say to Him, Yes. Would you bow with me? Would you this morning say, Yes. Could you do that? He's climbed down into the wreckage of your life and chosen to catch what you have. And He has overcome death and hell and punishment and wrath by bearing in His own body the punishment for your sin. And He invites you. He's sending you a friend request. But it's way different than the ones you've had before. He knows everything about you. He welcomes you. Affirms you. That He would rejoice and throw a party over you today if you would come to Him. And He invites you to say yes. Would you today turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And know Jesus as your friend. How about you call on Him with me right now and accept His friend request. Would you do that? Pray with me. God in heaven, I am that lost coin, that lost sheep, that lost son. I am that sinner, lost and sick, dead and in need of forgiveness. But I've heard you look for sinners, like the woman looked for the coin. That you search like the shepherd who went after the lost sheep. That you wait and long for like the dad who ran to his son when he returned. Jesus, I believe this. That you became sin. That you caught what I had. That you died for me. And I believe you were raised from the dead. And so right now, God in heaven, through Jesus Christ, save me from my sin. Save me. Oh, God, save me. 
thank You. Thank You for saving me. For hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name. If you prayed today, the angels, they're rejoicing. God is rejoicing. Let us rejoice too. During this time of invitation, you could come forward and you could say, you know, I did that today. I'm that sinner. And I've made things right by faith in Jesus. I trust Him. I want to identify with Him because He was willing to identify with me. I want to follow Him publicly. I'll be baptized. Because that's what Jesus said. Would you do that today? Believer, do the sinners of the world find you welcoming? Do do they find you affirming and inviting? If not, You're missing a big slice of what Jesus sent us to do. Would you commit today that that's how you'll be? Since God was that way towards you, you would be that way toward others. As God works in your heart today, stand and come.